Hello, and welcome to the NVIDIA AI Podcast. I'm your host, Noah Kravitz. I'm always excited to record a new episode of the podcast, but today's extra special, because today we're talking to NASA about the sun. My guests are two NASA scientists who are using AI to analyze solar images, a vast number of solar images, taken by the Solar Dynamics Observatory dating back to 2010. The data in these images helps protect interplanetary spacecraft from damage, helps track solar surface flows to better predict the weather in space, and does all kinds of other amazing stuff. Between the algorithms they're developing, and yes, the NVIDIA Quadro RTX data science workstations they use, our guests are able to do in less than a week what would have taken CPUs a year or more to work through. So without further ado, let's welcome our two guests. Raphael Atier is a researcher at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center and George Mason University, and Michael Kirk is a research scientist in the Heliophysics Science Division at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center and with Astra LLC. Raphael and Michael, welcome, and thanks so much for taking the time to join the NVIDIA AI podcast. Thank you very much, Noah. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start with a little bit about who the two of you are and what you do, uh, and then we can get more broadly into what NASA is doing with AI to sort through images and piles of data and all other kinds of stuff. Uh, so Raphael, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about what you do as a researcher. Sure, Noah. Uh, yes, my background is all about uh, studying the sun. And so I, I've been specializing into solar physics, which is a, a branch of astrophysics. And it's been, my background has been at the intersection of research using image processing, data science, and, and all that astrophysics that relates to the physics of the sun. I'm specialized into tracking the um, circulation of the plasma flows at the surface of the sun. And um, I, I started looking into uh, deep learning about two years ago, and I'm happy to talk about that more later on. Excellent. Uh, and Michael? Yeah, so I'm a solar scientist first and foremost. I did my PhD in, in astrophysics and specialized on the sun, but uh, much like Raphael, I got my start in, in image processing. And so I, I started processing images of the sun really early on and was using a lot of conventional image processing techniques. Um, and then as AI and machine learning became much more uh, accessible to the average scientist, um, I started using those tools as well. So even though my first love is astronomy, um, you know, I started looking at the stars when I was about eight years old. I suddenly started looking at our star, our closest star, the sun. And then now we're, uh, we're deep into deep learning, I guess, at this point. So I'm actually going to flip my order of questions around a little bit because I think it, it, it's better to start. Uh, <laughs> so many bad metaphors and jokes coming into my head now. To start where it all began. But let's talk about the sun for a second. Obviously, the sun is important because it literally gives our planet energy and life. But why is it so important to be studying things like plasma flows on the sun and the other uh, you know, specifics about the physics of the sun and the things that the two of you are spending so much time looking into. Uh, of course, uh, yes. So about uh, what you mentioned, the the, the all the plasma flows. Uh, studying that is is very it's fundamental for understanding what makes the sun what it is, what drives it, and how is the engine powered inside of it. How does it uh, create all these solar flares and coronal mass ejections, all these eruptions of energy that that heat us, and that also bring us warmth. And so studying all that brings us to a, a closer understanding of all these uh, very uh, complicated mechanisms. So the 
really amazing thing about our sun is that it's our closest plasma physics laboratory. So this is a big ball of plasma sitting out in space that we can actually see, we can resolve. And so like Raphael said, you know, understanding the flows on the sun is a natural laboratory to being able to ask fundamental physics questions. That, and also it explodes every once in a while and hits us. So, you know, protecting assets in space is a big issue with space weather, but we can get into that in a bit. We were joking before we hit record, um, and I think it was Brian, our producer, who made the joke at first that, you know, uh, as kids, we were taught, well, don't stare at the sun. Don't look directly into it. Uh, and yeah, what you guys do every day in a manner of speaking is looking directly at the sun. So talk a little bit, if you can, kind of, you know, in, in lay terms to start, and then we'll get deeper into the science and the deep learning and everything. But how do you observe the sun? You know, what kind of instruments are you using to take pictures, to look at the sun, if you will? And then how does machine learning and AI play into you know, processing and understanding the images and then sorting through just the, the massive troves of data that you're gathering? The first is how, how do we look at the sun? I guess the short answer would be carefully. Um, right. Well, all right. Uh, so we're, we're NASA. So we send things to space. That's that's what we do. And so all of the things that we are using to study the sun with currently are space based. The National Science Foundation uh, also has a bunch of ground based observatories. Uh, so these are telescopes that are specially designed to look at the sun. But all of our telescopes are space borne assets. So they're sitting on a satellite in orbit around the Earth 24 hours a day taking images of the sun. And like you referenced on the top, um, the primary instrument that uh, I'm working on these days, and I think Raphael's working on too primarily, is the Solar Dynamics Observatory. That is our eye on the sun, as they like to say. Um, and so this, this observatory has four different telescopes on it that take images of the extreme ultraviolet light of the sun, and then an additional instrument to measure magnetic fields on the sun. So how far away are the instruments, is the, the satellite from the sun? Yes. So the Solar Dynamics Observatory, it's a satellite that is in orbit around Earth. So it is at the same distance as Earth is okay. because it, it is in orbit around it. And so how much data are you gathering? How many, how many images, how many um, you know, terabytes of data, whatever the best way is to quantify it for the listeners? How much data is being gathered on, you know, whether it's every day or whatever the, the sequence is as you're, as you're taking pictures? So we are living in a tsunami of solar images. <laughs> we have so many <laughs> flowing in around us. Um, there's actually a, a new telescope that's going to be uh, taking even more data that's just coming online now, but we'll stick with the current current data flow. Okay. <laughs> so uh, we take an image about uh, once every 1.3 seconds of the okay. sun, and this is a 4K by 4K image at a 16-bit depth. So these are high-resolution images, both in bit depth as well as, as spatial scale. We get one about once every second, and we have been since 2010. Uh, so each of those images gets come uh, gets brought down to Earth through a ground station in New Mexico, um, and then it's archived at a couple of different locations in California and processed and, and done some processing. So if you take all of those images and add it up over the lifetime of the mission, including all the data products that are generated off of them, because oftentimes an image can be can generate um, uh, measurements off of a single image. We'll get into the measurements in a bit, I'm pretty sure. Okay. But um, those images, that entire data archive, we're sitting at about 18 petabytes right now. Okay. So we have 18 petabytes. <laughs> yeah. 18 petabytes of high resolution images of 
a single object, astronomical object, which is the sun. So I think, you know, you, you could go to any astronomer and say, hey, would you like 18 petabytes of Saturn <laughs> or of, of the galaxy you're studying? And they'd be like, oh, my gosh, that would be amazing. Right. We, we're, we're kind of in a data glut. Um, so the problem is, and, and this is really kind of the crux of the issue, is that there are so many images that we can't actually study all of them as scientists. There's just no physical way to look at all of the images and give it proper attention. And so what ends up happening and what ends up happening right now in our data workflow is that we ignore almost all of the data in the images. We only just do a cherry pick of the most interesting little tiny section. And that's that's great. I mean, we're, we found all sorts of uh, really amazing discoveries with it. But that also means that the majority of the information that this amazing um, instrument has taken is still just sitting in an archive. Yeah. So then all of that data that's sort of on the cutting room floor, uh, to, to use that analogy, is that just left there or are you able to do something with it? That's actually a really fantastic question because um, that's kind of the question we were asking ourselves about three years ago when this whole okay. project started. So when the images are brought down from the satellite, one of those pre-processing routines that are run is are calibrations. But the one that we were interested in was a cosmic ray uh, detector. So cosmic rays are electrons or protons um, flying around the Earth. They get trapped in the Earth's magnetic field. And if they hit the CCD on the camera, it can cause uh, like a, a white little fuzz uh, on the camera CCD. So like one pixel will get lit up. It makes it look like there's some noise in the right. images themselves. Okay. So there's an algorithm that comes in and does a cleaning. It goes through and detects these, these cosmic ray hits and uh, isolates them and then uh, interpolates over them. And so that the science quality images has some of that noise removed. Right. Um, and these algorithms are really good. They're really excellent algorithms. They, they're over 99.999% accurate. However, we have petabytes of images to look at. So even if you have an amazingly good detection algorithm, it's going to make some mistakes. And so that's where this whole project kind of got started. Uh, I was chatting with a, a colleague of ours, uh, Barbara Thompson, and we were just sort of batting back and forth some ideas about uh, what we could do with all of these cosmic ray detections. And one thought was, well, we can make a study about cosmic rays, but I personally don't find them that interesting. Uh, so... <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of kind of burst my bubble because just the uh, name cosmic ray detector, oh. you know, has me fantasizing about all kinds of cool sci-fi stuff. Oh, I mean, the name is fantastic. They're they're just a bunch of electrons, and so yeah. you know. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but what we started thinking about was, what if we could find all of those one pixel events on the sun, the the tiny little events on the sun that would just burst into view for one frame of all of the out of all the images have only the size of maybe one or two pixels and then disappear again. And this cleaning algorithm would mistakenly identify them as cosmic rays. So what if we could go through that, that archive of all of these removed cosmic rays and find the ones that were actually real events? That all of a sudden we have a nice boutique archive uh, or a boutique study of of all the tiniest events that we could possibly see on the sun, the ones that just are ephemeral, that they, they appear and disappear in, a, in just a few seconds. And that got really exciting because all of a sudden that's where new physics and new discoveries lie. And Noah, if I may uh, uh, comment on, on that, what's very interesting there is that we're showing you here that 
the sun is not just about uh, flows of plasma. There are other phenomenon that uh, Mike is describing with uh, all these cosmic rays, and they originate from a different uh, mechanism that involved the solar, the magnetic field of the sun. And, and what also Mike is describing in this other project is that what is considered as noise by some mm-hmm. is seen as actual data for others. Right. And this is something that the AI will will probably help with a lot because we actually can teach the AI to make its own decision on what is actual useful data and what is noise. And they right. may come up with their own internal definition of it. And that's very interesting as well. And so is this where you started developing uh, your own algorithms to to sift through this this section of the archive? Well, again, there are here we've been pointing at, at different projects. What Mike is talking about are these uh, coming through possible cosmic ray events. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is a very different project than the, uh, the flow, uh, you know, tracking the plasma flows. However, they can intersect if, for example, the AI algorithms come up with a way to cluster those events in telling us that what are considered cosmic rays and real physical events and not just noise, they may come from interesting sources at the sun that could be related to the flows. And so this is where uh, these projects started to intersect. Got it. Okay. And so there's kind of two two lines of, of thought I want to pursue here. So I'll try to briefly mention them both and run which <laughs> with whichever is, is more exciting. There's one to talk about, uh, which we definitely want to talk about, is the process of, of developing these algorithms internally amongst your team and other teams at NASA and how the GPU is played in and the results you've been able to achieve. And then the other thing I'm wondering about is, have you yet been able to find any interesting stuff, you know, in this, this data that's actually, or this noise rather, that's actually data, you know, the cosmic ray events, have you been able to, to uh, uncover anything that's potentially interesting? So what we found is that there's some really interesting trends um, with where these things occur. They don't just occur randomly on the sun. And that's that's really that's fascinating because they're um, distinctly related to physical events on the sun. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, we're still trying to figure that one out. Right. Um, right. We have a team that we're working with that, that we're, we're trying to figure it out. The other really fascinating thing, and and again, this will be a bit of a tease because we haven't we haven't actually figured out what this all means yet, is that some of these events are happening not on the sun, but just off the sun, oh, like interesting. just off the edge of the sun. And so, what is going on there? Why is this just a random chance that we we happened at our that our um, algorithms are not that accurate, and so we're we're getting a false positive? But you know, why would something off the sun be triggered like this? Um, but in general, this is this is still we're still um, getting through the data science it's to yeah. be able to get to the science itself. Rafael, you want to talk a little bit about your process in developing these algorithms? Uh, sure. Yeah, I, I was. I wanted to uh, throw another tease. There is that um, one thing that was very striking when I first got the when I looked at the first results of the uh, the GPU processing at the end of at the end of that I noticed that when I was projecting all these cosmic cravings and what was considered originally as noise it was striking to see that there are regions on the sun like known as sunspots and active regions mm-hmm. where we had far less uh, of these uh, you know cosmic rays and it is as if these um, arcade, these sort of magnetic loops, you, you got to imagine some sort of a, a loop that forms an arcade on the sun, and there are much less cosmic rays there. 
which was actually uh, uh, suggesting that, okay, this is not completely random, as Michael said. Right. And, and we were left, left there, you know, very curious. Okay, so that's interesting. This is not completely random because there are some specific places on the sun where these events do not happen. So there is a mechanism that is such that we do not observe them there. And that, that was very interesting. All right. So we're about 15, 20 minutes in. And we have we have proof that there is an order to the universe. So I'm excited about that. Now let's talk about that. That was a joke. Just anybody listening, not holding NASA to that. But uh, interesting stuff. Let's talk a little bit then, Raphael, if you would, about the algorithms themselves, as Michael hinted at, and the process you and your team have gone through developing them. Okay, so I've been using GPU for, again, two, uh, the two projects. Uh, for Michael's project, what the GPUs have been uh, used for was about accelerating a uh, clustering algorithms. And clustering is about, uh, it's a technique to try to find groups uh, using many different kinds of input data to try to find coherent groups that exist in parameter space, in that input, in that space of input parameters, which are the intensities, the location on the sun, and, and other parameters. And the GPUs helped us to calculate uh, what we called distances in that parameter space at speeds that were two orders of magnitude higher than what we could have done on CPUs. And so it was one thing. And yeah. it enabled us to do something, as you mentioned yourself, Noah, very, very well, is that we could do something in a week that we, that we couldn't even uh, do in, in a whole year. Right, right. And the other thing uh, I've, I've been using the um, GPU for were for deep learning algorithms. And I was working with a colleague from the National Solar Observatory, mm -hmm. uh, Benoit Tremblay, who uh, developed a, um, was working on neural, neural networks to uh, use simulation that were providing synthetic images of the solar surface, as well as the ground truth of what the flow fields were. So that we had only one hand, we had the input images that looked a lot like the one we see from the Solar Dynamics Observatory of the, of the solar surface, but also the uh, maps of the horizontal circulation of all the plasmas that is driving what we see in the images. And giving that to the neural network, we're able to infer uh, maps of the flows by giving new images of the sun without knowing the ground truth. And the AI is giving us what it is. It's yeah. giving us those flows. And that, that's very interesting. And the GPUs help a lot to accelerate that process. As you've been working through these and, and developing and refining the, the algorithms and the neural nets and such, are there specific hurdles you've encountered that you know, maybe you kind of anticipated, you know, given previous work you'd done in the field, or maybe that you weren't expecting, but, um, you know, any kind of interesting technical problems you hit that you were then able to get around? Oh, gosh, yeah. Uh, Michael, and, oh, yeah. Michael and I can speak hours about that. I think you will have to stop, you will have to stop us at some point. Michael, uh, release the Kraken. <laughs> I don't know. I think I think I might need a beer for this. Uh, I, I was just thinking some I, trauma. I was uh -huh. wondering if I could, you know, from a safe social distance, uh, have something delivered to you to help you through the, <laughs> the pain of reliving this. So by the time Raphael got into this project, um, he liked to call the project cursed. And, so, <laughs> and that's a that's a pretty accurate way of describing what was going on. So what happened was we we got funding to study this this sort of event the, these these cosmic ray events the um, the pixel trash so to speak that we were going through and I would say about everything that you could imagine in a data science workflow to go wrong we had some issues with so 
let's let's just knock through a few of them first. Okay, let's yeah. say um, uh, the data archive access. Okay, so we uh, I made a request to the data archive, and the sysadmin for the archive looked at my data request and basically said no. You should remind where the data archive was. Yeah, so so the data archive is um, is being hosted out at uh, Lockheed and Palo Alto. So we had to make an archive request all the way um, to the other side of the country to to right. pull the data back. Okay, so so they said no, and the reason why is that their data system architecture is such that if I wanted one file from every you know every second of of recording they just didn't have the structure to go in and select these individual files they were their their data structure was such where they would take large chunks of time and deliver those entire blocks of time right. they didn't have a system set up to be able to select out these individual files from the entire archive Okay, so after some conjoling, I, I found a, a, a nice admin who wrote a little striping script that would paw through the entire archive and deposit the files that I wanted in a, my own separate directory that I could go and download every night. Okay, so that was the first Sounds one. Sounds good. Okay. Right. Okay. Hurdle crossed. Okay, second hurdle was, okay, now that we have them, uh, we, make, we need uh, about 14 terabytes of space to store them on. Okay, that's not a problem. Uh, we had a nice RAID drive. I stick them onto the RAID drive. Well, when you're sticking you know, millions of files onto a RAID drive, I think we had 131 million individual files. You have to start thinking about this things like the architecture of the file systems itself. Uh, I need to climb in there. I really need to climb in. I really need to. <laughs> Uh, one thing to really empathize and, and sympathize with, with Michael and I there, we should remind that this red archive that he's talking about was an external hard disk with a USB 2 cable. <laughs> That's what it was. It, it, it's great. The, the subheader for the show notes here will be, you know, NASA data scientists, they have the same hard drive problems that everybody else has. And, and Michael said 14 terabytes. Yeah. So imagine yeah. that going yeah. over USB two. That's no good. Yes. Yeah. No. That's fine. And so uh, I I got all of the files uh, moved on to this external RAID system after you know setting up a little cron job that would run every night and scrape them down. And I was feeling good about myself. We could finally move forward. And then of course the problem was that the format of the RAID system was not compatible oh, across no. operating systems. Okay. <laughs> Well, crap. Uh, so now we had to find another uh, place to move all the files to, so I could reformat the hard drives and then stick them back on again. Right. Okay. All right. Okay. Now, now the next step. Okay, I have my finally my my archive that is readable. Yes, fantastic. Okay. Now let's get some software that we can actually start doing something with this. Okay. You know, we're just talking about uh, initial Python libraries and then eventually needing to use some some of the more sophisticated uh, tools from NVIDIA or or anything or any even just a CPU version like from Intel or something like that. OK, well, now we have install problems because we don't have root access on the data science or the, the data science workstation. All right. So now you have to find a, a friendly sysadmin again to go in and do make all of those boutique installs that you need to and to just even try the project. And I think it was around this time that Raphael started um, jumping in on the project. And I, I don't remember exactly what his words were, but it was something to the effect of, why are you even doing this? You should just give up. Um, this is this is not worth it. And then I, I started, on, you make me sound like a troll. That, that's not what happened. <laughs> 
<laughs> so that that's it is that I started actually talking to you about the data science problem. And that's what sucked you in is when I was just yeah. complaining about. So we share an office at Goddard. And so I just would complain about it uh, to him every time I walked by his desk. And it's this is when he was just saying, oh, you should just give up. And then eventually. <laughs> Uh, I talked about the whole problem and, you know, the, the wheels, the gears got turning in Raphael's head and pretty soon he was sucked in and hasn't, hasn't left since. Yeah. So just to get the story straight, Michael was the one complaining first because I, I saw him grumpy in the office <laughs> and, and I, 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 I was feeling bad. I said, OK, Michael, what, what, what's going on? And so, no, what, what, how it really started was really what, what Michael said, that when we started turning things around with a, an actual seeing that as an actual data science uh, problem. Because right, originally, right. we, our minds usually with our background, as we said at the beginning, we're from the astrophysics background and image processing background. So usually when you deal with lots of images, you have a set, your brain is wired in a way that you see data and you see images as images, right? As just 2D arrays. But those data, they were actually column data and, and they were just uh, intensity uh, values with coordinates and not, they were not actual images. And, and so by turning that into a more data science problem, instead of having the uh, image processing paradigm that Michael was working with, that's how we started to see ways to accelerate that in, in new ways. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to leave here thinking this was all some grand nefarious plot on Michael's part just to suck you into the project, Raphael. Yeah, I still, yeah now I think I understand what he did there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I bought him a bottle We're, of wine. I don't know what he's complaining about. There you go. <laughs> We're talking today with Raphael Atier and Michael Kirk. They are researchers at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Uh, Raphael is also with George Mason University and Michael with Astra LLC. Uh, and we're talking about uh, their work taking and analyzing solar images, huge numbers of solar images to examine what's going on on the sun with... Um, plasma flow and cosmic rays and all kinds of other stuff that that is part of the process of unlocking more understanding about our universe and and how it works. Uh, we're going to shift gears a little bit. And you guys kind of alluded to um, how you started working together and just that camaraderie of, um, you know, walking by each other's desks in the office. Um, obviously, things have changed in the past several months. Uh, recording this now in I don't even know what month it is anymore. Mid-July of 2020. You guys are both working from home now? Yep. And given that you're working with, uh, you know, petabytes of data and uh, pulling data structures from the other side of the country, let alone from satellites orbiting the sun, you've got big data, big computational needs. You've been used to working with big GPUs. What's it like trying to do all this from home? Well, currently it's not happening, but it will. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, and and uh, why is it not, and why will it be? So, well, in my uh, in my case, we're in the similar situation with Michael. Well, I I basically uh, I went back to my laptops, and uh, which they don't have uh, the GPUs tailored, you know, to to that kind of processing that I got used to at, at Goddard. But uh, yeah, uh, the good thing is that I, I had um, a budget for for that, and I'm gonna I'm actually gonna have the uh, GPU same GPU workstation that I used to have with Michael at on-prem. I'm going to have it here, thanks to the uh, George Mason University, who is allowing, allowing me to do that. Great. So it's going to be here. I'm going to also articulate around uh, cloud computing and virtual machines on the cloud and to try to really reinvent ourselves as scientists living in the, you know, the COVID era where we yeah. have to work from home. And still, there are things you, you can imagine there comp that we, have, we manipulate complex data. There are things we cannot just do a PowerPoint to present 
uh, maps of the flows or the dynamics of cosmic rays on the sun, the 2D format rather static of a PowerPoint, that, that just doesn't work. And, and so, yeah, we, we have to reinvent ourselves and cloud computing and GPU workstation, all the, it starts to make sense. And the intersection of that is where a new kind of science is, is going to emerge. Michael, is a similar situation for you? Yeah, very similar. I mean, I have right now I'm running on two laptops, one with Mac OS and one with Ubuntu. So, you know, I hop back and forth depending on what project makes most sense in which operating system. Not ideal, but it, it's it's sort of uh, it's slowly changing now. OK, so the first three months or four months, I don't know, I've lost a track to was really just trying to, you know, make things continue to work. And so you sort of just brute force what you can and and put off what you can to get to work until later. Now we've moved into this new phase, at least I can speak for myself, but I, I really think I'm seeing a lot of in my colleagues of genuinely changing our workflows to work yeah. from home. I mean, this is I mean, like a structural change. I'm going to uh, use Raphael as, a, as an example uh, that he took it upon himself to create a, a, a stack exchange like a message board where you can post questions about heliophysics image processing or, or just data processing in general for heliophysics that he's hosting personally on his own server right now. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> but it's because we don't we can't walk by each other's desks yeah. and say, yep. hey, I've not used Plotly before. Have you? Uh, something like that or, or any other tool that you might want to use. And so we're trying to start to think of what do we need to capture? Um, and it's not just about hardware sitting on your desk, but what sort of knowledge do you need to capture and put into the cloud environment that you really can keep your workflows going? And that it's taken some adjustment. I mean, it's certainly better to, you know, sit back in Raphael's cubicle and complain at him about data science problems. But <laughs> if I can't do that, then, you know, hopping on a Zoom call and then writing up a, a little thing on the Stack Exchange like message boards. And, you know, it, it takes it takes care of itself. Um, it's not it's not the same, but it is it's capturing not just the hardware aspects of it, but the knowledge sharing aspects of it, too, that are really starting to change. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And Noah, if you want, I have a very concrete example of, of something that uh, I am actually trying to do now. Please. Um, and it's about, you know, uh, my I work with also, uh, I have a boss, you know, like many people. And uh, uh, he, needs, he needs to have um, uh, results of, um, he needs to have the, the maps of the flows overlaid onto uh, maps of the magnetic field of the sun. Right. And he needs to see that dynamically because things change rapidly. But the thing is, my maps of the flows can be visualized in many different ways because there are very different ways to show the status and the state of the, the circulation of the, of the plasma the surface of the sun. And so he needs to be able to select these different kinds of visualization layers. And again, not something you can do on PowerPoint. So I have to come up with a new visualization dashboard that is interactive where he can click and select the different overlay that he needs. Because he's not, he doesn't have the tools to create those maps. I have, I'm the one who, who is able to provide right. that, right. and and so I'm not gonna just send him the data and say, oh, okay, click on that button, it's gonna generate all that, and and then you will have the maps of the flows, and then hey, you're on your own for visualizing all that. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> so now I I want to provide him with a way to visualize that interactively, whereas I would have actually already processed that, or things would actually run on request on the server side, server that would be either on a virtual machine in the cloud or at my home with a new um, uh, GP workstation. You know, either way, I need to provide 
that interactive way of to see those data interactively. So, so your main gig is studying the sun, and on the side, you spin up um, Stack Exchange cloud message boards and uh, new ways of visualizing complex data so that your colleagues and your boss can keep up with the work you're doing, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, all, really, all in a day's work. We really lost this organic connection. We need to restore it somehow. It will not be as, as great as before, but we need to narrow that gap. If we don't, we're going to fall into that gap. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's really the the crux of what's going on at NASA right now. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of your uh, listeners can can relate to it, is that, you know, initially we recognize that things were missing, but we were just ignoring them. And now we, we can't ignore them. And so we have right. to innovate. And so that's that's really what's going on now is a bunch of innovation. Well, to that end, we, we usually like to end the conversations on a bit of a forward looking note, thinking about, you know, the the impact of your work or even um, the, the progress within your, your kind of niche field over the next two years, three years, five years. Obviously, that's a little bit, I don't know if it's harder to do, but it's just different now in, in the COVID age and kind of not knowing, eh, everybody keeps saying new normal. Let's just say not knowing how normal is going to evolve going forward. And, and as you guys said, you're you're now at the stage of kind of reinventing your workflows and thinking of new tools that will help you kind of bridge those gaps so you don't fall into it. Either how do you see it kind of playing out in the next few years going forward? Or maybe what are the things that, um, you know, you're kind of looking to uh, to get your focus on uh, when it comes to, I think, both ways that NASA can keep going forward and you're able to to keep doing the work you're doing, even if you're not in the same office, and then kind of getting back to to the project at hand. Um, you know, what, what are you excited about? What are you hoping to to find out from all of this image data and uh, the cosmic ray data that that you know might actually unlock some mysteries as opposed to just being noise. What, what do you see going forward in the next couple of years for your work? It's a big uh, question, but you guys work on big questions, so yeah. I figured I could throw you one. So I think what I am most interested in is uh, there. Well, there's sort of the logistical side of things and the more of the science side of things. Logistical right. side is is getting more comfortable with a uh, you know laptop to data science workstation to cloud compute sort of workflow, where I can be comfortable moving a project through each of the stages um, to to scale up or to adapt as as resources are available or as my project evolves. And so that that sort of you know from prototype to data science workstation to uh, cloud compute and then back down to to actually do the the analysis and visualization of it all is a, you know it's a data science problem and a lot of data scientists out there I'm sure can can relate to it and it's a matter of um, making sure that we can work at NASA using that workflow and of course at a government agency there are all sorts of other uh, issues that we have to deal with in terms of uh, security protocols and making sure that all of the agencies they're talking to each other, and so it's it's more than just uh, you know spinning up an AWS instance and, and going. Um, uh, and then more on the science side of things, what I'm really hopeful is that we can start uh, minimizing this virtual distance between us, and that by having to use new tools for collaboration, 
and making it a whole lot less different between working with a colleague that is, you know, physically here in Washington, D.C., where I am, or uh, working with a colleague that is in Europe or Colorado or, mm -hmm. you know, or China. And, and so being able to work internationally, I think, actually broadens the scope of what the possibilities are. It's just we, we're so used to working in a, in a very confined office space that, that that's where we would turn to. And so, you know, I just got, got a word that um, proposal, a phase A proposal was accepted with a colleague who is uh, leading it out of uh, University of Colorado to build the next generation solar imager. So, you know, maybe in 10 years, that thing will be launched and we'll have a whole new set of data to start working with. Awesome. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Raphael, some thoughts on the, on the future to leave yes. it abroad? Uh, sure. Yeah. On, on Just a comment on the logistic uh, practical side uh, first is that it is true that currently, you know, all these cloud computing environments that that is a kind of available, it's still it's still it needs to evolve in a, in a very more practical way. For example, when we when we have laptops, we don't necessarily have uh, GPUs in, in, in there and we still need to prototype our code before, you know, paying for time for compute time in a, in a cloud environment. And prototyping code when you have terabytes of data to kind of test before moving up to petabyte scale data archive, you, you need to prototype that that very well first. Right. And I'm still sometimes it's I find that as a disincentive when I see the the, the cost of cloud computing of a virtual machine with GPUs, it is still very expensive. And 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 I'm not push toward that when I compare the price between that and a local GP, good GPU workstation that can give me the same amount of computation uh, for several years when it, it may pay just for six months on the cloud. Yeah, I think that the pricing needs to be a bit more uh, democratic in the COVID era because otherwise we're going to stay stuck in our home and we're going to stay prisoner of our own small experiments. So that, that's really on the practical side. Uh, on the science side of things, what, what AI is really offering is a way to maybe crunch through uh, terabytes of data that are that can be very difficult to move back to Earth. And so where I see where Michael and I have been seeing things evolve is, is having a way to put all that computing power up in the sky. Up in space, yeah. Yeah. And to, to really deliver the juice that we want. But it's it's it's, uh, it requires a philosophical shift. Not all missions need to do that, but I would like to see some small experimental mission to look into that. And at the risk of opening up a can of worms that we don't have time to really dive into, are there not high performance, you know, kind of edge computers up in the sky right now, or are they just not, it's just not at the level where, you, where you'd like to see it? Well, it takes many, many years to develop a mission. So when something is launched, you know, at the, when it starts to be designed, what you put in there is state of the right. art. But right. by the time it's launched, it, it looks over, uh, you know, outdated. So what you yeah. call now high performance computing, it probably was called that at the time, right? Uh, but, but not anymore. But we, we've seen an exponential evolution with all these GPUs and that makes things interesting. And the, the, the lead time to develop a mission now has, has come smaller with, you know, small satellites, cube satellites that are very small satellites. They, they, they have a developing time, design time that may be smaller. So Michael will know more, actually, may have something to say there. Yeah. So it's a, it's a rough environment in space. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, that that is really the the issue that is blocking 
wide adaptation of GPUs in, in orbit. There are a few that are up on the International Space Station right now uh, because they do have the radiation shielding. But if you were to say, let's stick a GPU on a CubeSat, I mean, that would be really exciting. Well, the radiation environment up there, all those cosmic rays we were talking about earlier, would effectively cause enough errors in whatever compute that it's trying to do that it would be unusable. So what uh, most of what's used on, on orbit right now, um, whether you're talking about Earth's orbit or Mars's orbit or you know even farther out, are FPGAs. Uh, those are the standard bearer for any sort of uh, orbital computing. And if we want to move to this massively parallel regime like a GPU um, or even just a, a minor parallel regime, it's going to take a lot of intense effort in engineering. And so there is a lot more to that can of worms, like you said. But um, just the brief one sentence kind of pithy answer is space is hard. So I, I uh, like what you said earlier. It's rough up there in space. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> it really is. And I know that the Air Force is interested from defense applications. I know that telecoms are interested for being able to crunch more, you know, telephone data or, or television signals. I know that NASA is interested to take do better science in orbit. So there's a lot of interested parties. I think we'll see it. It's just a matter of when. And that there's a lot that needs to happen before we see a GPU on a satellite. Yeah. All right. Well, it it gives us a it gives us a reason to check back in with you guys. You know, a year, two years, ten years, and uh, see see where we're at with that can of worms. Let alone all of the solar image data you guys <laughs> are working with. For folks listening who might want to find out a little bit more about the whole lot of stuff we talked about, and you guys, Raphael and Michael, are working on, is there somewhere online that's a good place uh, for people to point their browsers to start digging in? Yeah, there's a lot of great resources. So um, if you're interested in images of the sun, uh, specifically the images that we were talking about, you want to explore them yourself, helioviewer.org uh, is a great website. It's run by a colleague of mine, or of ours, uh, Jack Ireland, uh, out of NASA, helioviewer.org. It's fantastic. That, that would be the first place to go. Of course, then if you want to get a little bit more deep into, let's say, the data science behind some of this stuff and you want to start playing with some of it yourself, the uh, SunPy is the solar physics uh, Python application that you can go and, and download in any Python install. And uh, it will start giving you the tools to actually start looking at some of this data, downloading it yourself, cool. looking at it yourself. All the data is open access. So, you know, you can download yeah. it just like I did. <laughs> Excellent. I'll, I'll format my RAID drive the correct way before I download it. But, but yeah, you know, please. fair enough. <laughs> well, great, guys. This this has been terrific. And um, there, there's just scratching the surface, I'm, I'm sure. So hopefully we can have you guys back on the show again at a future date and, and get an update on what's going on. But Raphael, Michael, thank you both so much for taking the time uh, to come on the podcast and talk a little bit about the work you're doing you know, all the best continuing to adapt and innovate and, uh, you know, spin up the tools that you need to, to keep doing this from home for as long as you're doing it from home. Thank you very much, Noah. You're very welcome. <laughs>